Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. We're in the second half today of the book, uh, the chapter of Exodus chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, underneath the seat in front of you, there should be a blue one. And in those blue Bibles, we're on page 27, I believe. Feel free to take that home with you. If you're new to a a Christian church, um, we do what most churches do. Every Sunday when we get together, we sing and we read scripture, we greet each other, we pray, we confess sin, and then we open the scriptures because we believe it's through the Bible that God speaks today. And this uh, story we'll be recounting is very old, and yet it teaches us timeless truths about God. We're working our way through uh, the second book in the Bible, a book called Exodus. In last Sunday's passage, we started in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and made our way through half of chapter 4. God chose Moses to be the human agent through whom he would rescue his people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt and take them into the promised land. And God's choice of Moses was hard for Moses to get his head around. He had committed murder and fled. And as hard as it was for Moses to get his head around it, it was even harder, even more difficult for him to bend his will to what God wanted. And yet Moses uh, eventually did. God uh, told Moses a lot about himself. And so if you're not familiar with those previous verses, chapter 3, verse 1, up through where we are today, I'd encourage you to go back and read them. They're among the most important passages in the Bible at describing Uh, at God self-describing, disclosing uh, who He is. Those verses are something of a mountaintop passage. And today, we're going to descend into what initially feels like a bit of a mundane valley. We're going to leave the mountain and go down to the bumpy road of the valley of the Midianite wilderness as they head for Egypt. And yet there are great things for us here today. These verses we'll be looking at break down nicely into three separate scenes, and they largely don't seem to be chronological, and yet they're grouped together because they have to do with the, uh, the departure from Midian and the making of the way to back to Egypt. These three scenes, we might describe them this way if you're taking notes. First, we'll look at uh, what we might call heading back. That's the the journey back toward Egypt. That's verses 18 to 23. And then in the odd portion of our passage, we're gonna look at travel troubles, verses 24 to 26. And then finally, the real high point in the text, we'll look at the welcome of the elders of Moses and his brother, and then their worship response, verses 27 to 31. So we'll spend a little bit of time in each of those texts. First, let's talk about heading back. Chapter four, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let us go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, had them ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Three times we read in these couple of verses the word go, and four times we read the word back. It's clear that these couple of verses are about travel. This is a travel log, if you will. First, Moses traveled out of the wilderness where he'd been watching the sheep, and he went back to Midian to talk to Jethro, his father-in-law. Out of respect, and because it was the common thing you would do at this point in time, culturally, he asked his father-in-law for permission to take the family back to Egypt. Now, why Moses only disclosed part of the reason why he wanted to go back isn't clear but he's headed in the right direction nonetheless. And God in his mercy offered 
Moses' reassurance that it was, in fact, safe to return. Then Moses loaded up his wife and kids and all their stuff into the minivan, and off they went. Now, the other detail that's in these verses seems like an extra kind of throwaway. It's the end of verse 20. It says, And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Sort of seems like a useless packing detail. Maybe you're going on a trip for spring break or just came back. You might have made a list of things that you were taking with you. This seems like one of those, just an item on the list. But the scriptures are telling us here something really important. They're telling us that as Moses made his way on this journey back to Egypt, that he was going under the commission of God with the power of God, with the authority of God, under the direction of God, and that he would have God's very might to do the things that God was sending him to do. Notice that this staff, which is just a stick, the stick is described as the staff of God. This simple stick has become an instrument of divine power. God's power is so great, he can take a simple stick and transform it into something useful, useful for mighty deeds. I think that's a pretty cool picture of what we are. We are simple sticks that God can take and with his presence, we can be infused with his power to do his work. The stick will come up again time and time and time and time again as we work our way through the book of Exodus because it's a symbol of the very power and presence of God. And Christian, you are not just a symbol. You are actually a person in whom God dwells. This means the power of God is with you to do the things that God has set you out to do. Now let's read on. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son son. Now, these are significant verses for two primary reasons. First, God discloses for the very first time in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh will not be cooperative, that there will be resistance between Pharaoh and between Moses. And this resistance is under the very sovereignty of God. We see that in verse 21 with this odd phrase, I will harden his heart. To harden means to make stubborn, to cause to be uncooperative. And that's God speaking of Pharaoh. Now I know it's Sunday morning, but maybe you're awake enough that this is causing some questions to come to mind. The idea of Pharaoh having a hard heart comes up a whole bunch of times in the book of Exodus. We're gonna see it as a dominant theme, in fact, through five or six chapters. And it raises, of course, natural and important questions. I'll save a, a detailed explanation of this for when we hit those chapters. But to sort of wet your whistle, if I could, to get you prepared for what's gonna come. This hardening is described in three different ways in the book of Exodus. First, Moses is described, uh, Moses describes for us, I should say, in such a way that Pharaoh is said to have hardened his own heart. Pharaoh, in his own volition, by his own will, decides, and he's free to do so, I will resist Moses and Moses' God. So that's one way it's talked about. A second way is what we see in this passage. It's said that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then finally, a third way this is captured is that it doesn't speak of either causation at all. It just says 
that Moses Moses describes Pharaoh's heart as having been hardened. And so the reason I bring that up is to say, in each one of those texts, Pharaoh hardening his own heart, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, or his heart just being hardened, none of those three are said to be in contradiction or in contrast to each other. There there is no sense in which the Bible is not being truthful or is cutting corners. No, it's simply telling us exactly what happened. And apparently, God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Moses telling us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart are not in conflict. These things work together. That is, people make decisions, and God is sovereign, even over those decisions that they make. Now, a second concept covered in these verses, verses 21, 22, and 23, is not a head-scratcher. It's rather simply beautiful and very clear. It's this idea of the people of God being the firstborn son. Yahweh, the God who simply is, describes his people, his chosen people, with the intimate terminology of a father and his son. And this is the first place in the whole Bible that this comes up. It's going to come up again and again and again and again as you read through the whole biblical corpus of books. But like parents love for, care for, act for their children, God does for his own. It's a beautiful picture of the way in which God relates to his people. Except there is one key difference. God never makes any parenting mistakes. God never has to say, I'm sorry. If I had known this, I wouldn't have had you do that. I'm sorry I blew up and exploded at you again. God never makes any mistakes. He always does what's right. Now, beloved, when I say the word father, what comes to mind? What are the first images, the first memories? If we were playing a word association game and you hear the word father, what is it that you think of? Some of us, maybe a sizable percentage of us, little good emerges when we hear the word father. Perhaps your dad was or is fantastic. But for many of us in the room, our dads were less than that. Perhaps your father was abusive or absent. Maybe he was disinterested or distant. Maybe he was self-absorbed and disparaging. Christian, your heavenly father is stunningly different. This dad is perfect. This dad always does what's right. This dad always uses his resources and leverages them in a way to bring about your good. That is, Christian, your ultimate sanctification. You're being made holy and being transformed into the image Jesus Christ. And notice in verse 22 that Israel is described not just as a son, but as a firstborn son. The Lord is here invoking a powerful symbol of blessing that was obvious to Moses, but is less so to us. In Moses' day, the firstborn son in a family was uniquely dedicated to God in a way different from any other child that would be born. You may have heard, as you've read the scriptures before, or heard texts taught that there are times when Israel was told, the first fruit of your crop, that is, 
the very first harvest in the new year was to be set aside and given to God. It was an offering to God. This is the same thing. The firstborn child, the firstborn son, was the, the fruit of the marriage in a unique, special way. And so they were told to dedicate this child to God, to pay an, an offering, an offer a sacrifice, and then you would get that child back on loan from God. Part of that blessing was receiving a place of honor in the family and responsibility. And because of that honor and responsibility, the firstborn son was given the lion's share of the inheritance. And so God calling Israel his firstborn son is a picture that they would receive all those blessings belonging to the firstborn that they would be dedicated to God in a unique way. But are the Old Testament people of God the only sons or sons and daughters of God? Of course not. In the New Testament, we see very clearly that God welcomes to Himself in Christ people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And yet Israel does hold that place of firstbornness. In the New Testament, because God's people are united to Jesus Christ, all God's people are embraced with sonship language. Now, ladies, far from leaving you sort of ripped off or unaddressed, I think actually you are incorporated in, in a way culturally that would have been seemingly unthinkable. Because in the days when the scriptures were written, women didn't own property. And that meant you didn't have an opportunity at the inheritance in the way that sons did, especially firstborn son. And so when God uses the language that you, Christian lady, are a son, what he's saying is, you are incorporated into the blessings of being a firstborn son given the privileges and blessings and status that he would have had. So you're incorporated in, in a beautiful picture of the gospel. Beloved, this means that in Christ, the blessings, the rights, the resources, the privileges belonging to Jesus Christ himself have been given to you. Because when Jesus died, you died too. When Jesus rose again, you rose again too. And so that means that you're in Christ and Christ is in you and what belongs to Jesus as God's son belongs to you. Because Jesus is the true Israel, because Jesus is God's perfect son, who never disobeyed, who always gave himself in dedication to his Father. All who are in Christ are regarded with the same disposition that that Father has for his Son. Isn't that amazing? One pastor I read this week put it this way, the work of Christ is to bring slaves of sin into the liberty of sonship. I love that. Church, we have the very best possible father because our dad is the perfect heavenly father. And just as Israel was rescued out of Egypt, we too have been rescued out of slavery to sin. Now with that in mind, look with me at the next couple of verses as we consider travel troubles. And parents, if there's any parents who chose to leave your little kids here, that's on you. You've been warned for what these verses say. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zephorah, this is Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. 
and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Well, (laughs) the kids today say about this kind of text, that's a bit sus. Along the way, as they left the Midianite wilderness and came to Egypt, some very strange stuff happened to Moses and his family. And this is one of the most enigmatic, bizarre passages in the entire Old Testament. And that's saying something. Let me give you five things that are not clear in this paragraph. If you were to pick out 10 scholarly commentaries and read them on these five things, you might get 50 different answers. All right, here they are. Number one, who is the him in verse 24? Who's that referring to? It simply doesn't tell us. We move from one topic to a related one without any explanation of him. This paragraph was written in Hebrew, and in Hebrew, the text just says he or him over and over and over and over. Your Bible may use the word Moses, perhaps with a footnote, depending on your translation, but Moses isn't named in the original. The translators have put him there to try to help the paragraph be clearer, but in the original, it's simply not clear who is him. Some say it was Moses. Some say it's Moses' son, Gershom. We simply can't be, be certain. A second thing that isn't clear is how did God seek to put him, whoever him is, to death? How did he do that? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. Number three, feet in verse 25 may mean feet. But feet was also a Hebrew euphemism for one's genitals. That's all I'm going to say about that. Number four, in verse 25, as Zephora speaks, she says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Was she angry or was she happy? It's not clear. It could be either one. In other words, this could be a rebuke or it could be a joyful declaration of something good. And number five, what in the world is a bridegroom of blood? Last night, I officiated a wedding and they didn't want that phrase used. It's the weirdest thing. All right, so in 14 years, except for the first gathering today, I've never read a passage before and said, here are five things that I have no idea what these mean. I've never done that before. And the reason I do it today is to try to make a really obvious point. And that is some passages of scripture are less clear than other passages of scripture. And so that brings with it a host of implications. You, you wouldn't want to build your whole theology out of these couple of verses in something that could be this or could be that. So we want to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. A second thing is, perhaps God saw to it that this was written this way. There's no perhaps about that. That's exactly what happened. And maybe the reason for that is that all these things we could spend time speculating about are not the point of the paragraph. Maybe what is clear is designed to be really clear and stand out. I think that's what's going on. It's very clear that the topic of these verses has something to do with disobedience related to circumcision. There's five things that aren't clear, 
But that one thing is that whatever was going on in this event, they're like stopped at a triple A campsite. And this weird thing happens. And whatever this is, it has something to do with circumcision. In the Old Testament, circumcision was done not mainly for physical reasons, but for spiritual reasons. It had spiritual significance. And where this is described or commanded in the Bible is back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 17. Let me read you some verses that describe where this came from. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply, watch that word, you're gonna see it a bunch of times, may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. Here it comes. And you and your offspring after you shall be throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So that's where this came from. That's where the command was first given. Since that day on, Jewish families were supposed to take their eight-day-old son and have him circumcised. And this circumcision was to be a sign or a physical indicator appointing to one being marked as being part of the people of God. Now, there isn't an Old Testament passage that says, here's why God picked that. I mean, it could have been clip his toenails on the eighth day. That would have been easier. Why did he pick that? There isn't a passage that says exactly, but it may have been because, did you notice how many times in that passage it talked about multiplying or a multitude? Well, back in the first time God promised this to Abraham, he told him, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And so God, in other words, would be producing a new ethnic group through Abraham. And that as those Jews grew into more and more and more and more people, the men would be marked by this sign because it's through their seed, eventually all the nations would be blessed. I think actually it's a little uncomfortable and weird that uh, you know, 150 of us or so are sitting around talking about this this morning. But it's not bizarre. It is the most natural part of the body through which that multitudinous that was promised could be marked by a sign. Now, a failure to obey came with dire consequences. Later in those same verses, verse 14, it says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, if we go back to our passage in Exodus, whatever was going on there, it's got something to do with that, with Genesis chapter 17. Probably Moses, for whatever reason, had not circumcised his son. 
Church, disobedience is a serious thing. Sin has consequences. And it has consequences not only for an individual. Sin is always communal. It's always corporate. When you and I sin in private and no one else is there, we may think that that only affects us and God, but that's never true. Disobedience always has an effect on our families and on our church. And in this case, if Moses was to lead the people of God out of Egypt, then he needed to have dealt with areas of sin in his own life. One scholar put it this way, being called is no excuse for being compromised. Apparently Moses hadn't led his family in such a way that they had taken the sign of circumcision. And therefore, he wasn't ready for the task that was set before him. And so the family was about to experience this being cut off. Somehow, we don't know how, Zephora, his wife, knew that that was the issue, and she intervened. We see here again in the book of Exodus, women intervening on behalf of men who didn't do what they were supposed to have done. Doing so may have saved either Moses or their son's life. There's also an anticipation here of something coming later in the book of Exodus. When we reach the Passover, there is a picture of all the Jews being told again, obey Genesis 17. Apparently it had fallen out of style. They were disobeying God and not following this command. And this bridegroom of blood may in fact have something to do with the idea of a substitute. That one's shedding of blood can save another. Today, men, you need not be circumcised for spiritual reasons. Can I get a hallelujah? This is no longer an issue, in other words, of obedience to God, because we're part of the new covenant. We're no longer under the old covenant, so we're not commanded to do this anymore. The new covenant is better. It's superior to the old. And in the new covenant, we have a new sign, a different sign, the sign of baptism. When a Christian gets into the waters behind me and is bold and courageous in the Lord and reads their testimony about how God has saved them, and when they're put under the water, they're depicting that when Jesus died, they died too. And as they come up out of the water cleansed, they give a picture, a visible demonstration that they've been raised to walk in newness of life. That's the new covenant sign of being part of the people of God. In a way I could not have orchestrated, I'm not smart enough, we're gonna get to see that today. Here in just a few minutes, Katie, one of the college students, is going to be baptized. She will be taking the new covenant sign upon herself. Friend, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, then understand how important it is that you do so. This is the first thing God commands you to do as his new son or new daughter. So whether you've been a Christian 10 days or 10 years, taking that covenant sign publicly is an act of obedience and blessing. And if that's difficult, think of how much more difficult the Old Testament sign was. <laughs> We're not asking that much, right? Any of the pastors would love to talk with you about the need to get baptized. Now, we've looked at the first two scenes, this traveling back to Egypt and the travel troubles. Now let's look at our final verses for today. The Lord said to Aaron, verse 27, Aaron is Moses' brother, go into the wilderness 
to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had been sent to speak and all the signs that he'd been commanded to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. In this third and final scene, we reach a very beautiful moment. God sent Aaron to Moses because Moses was complaining, saying, I can't talk good and I need help. And so God in his mercy sent Aaron, his brother, to help him. And Moses told Aaron everything Yahweh had commanded him to do at the burning bush. And then together, they gathered all the Israels, all the uh, elders of Israelites to them. And so imagine the scene. The elders are the, the leaders, if you will, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so somehow word got out, Moses and Aaron are back, and God has spoken to them. Come hear what he said. Your prayers are finally answered. Aaron shared with them that Yahweh heard their cry, that he saw their affliction, that he knew their troubles, and that he was sending Moses to rescue them. The end of slavery was in sight. Beloved, there may be times when you pray that you feel like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling coming right back down to you. That God is indifferent, that God is disinterested, that God's got bigger, more important people to attend to. And yet that's not how prayer works because that's not what our Father is like. There's a beautiful parable Jesus tells in which he describes a a old widow who is being treated unjustly. And he, she goes to the unjust judge repeatedly and begs him, begs him, begs him to intervene on her behalf. And he is indifferent. But eventually she goes back so many times and is so pesky that he simply breaks down and gives in because he's annoyed. And then Jesus says something like this. If the unjust judge broke down and did what is just because of the persistence of the widow, how much more does your father who is just pledge himself to do what's right as you persist with him? God literally says, pray like an annoying old widow. Why? Because God wants to hear from you. Because your prayers matter. Because something happens in you as you pray. Because God answers prayer. The Israelites had prayed for years and years and years for God to rescue them. And here in this scene that we're talking about, the Israelites here, God has heard your prayers. God is going to act on your behalf. God is going to see that you'll no longer be slaves to Pharaoh. I'll free you so that you can serve me. And I'm a much better master. Israel would be God's people in God's place, under God's blessings. And most importantly, in God's presence. I love verse 31. I think it's worth reading again. And the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, 
they bowed their heads and worshiped. What an incredible moment that must have been. God's promises were recounted, and before anything had been accomplished, they simply took God at His word. That's what we're to do, too. Because when God says He's going to do something, brothers and sisters, it's as good as done. No one can prevent God or stand in His way or present an insurmountable obstacle. He is God, after all. So what God says He'll do, He'll do. The question is just when and how, not if. They knew that God would deliver him, and that was good enough. And as the weight of that glorious moment fell on them, notice that the first thing they did, these elders, wasn't to run back and tell their families. The first thing they did was bow their heads and worship. Church, every Sunday, that's what we do together. We hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We're reminded again of what He's still doing for us. We hear about what He will do, and we bow our heads in worship. We hear how He's rescued us out of slavery to sin, how His death and resurrection provide the way to a restored relationship with God. We hear how He has united us to Christ and to each other. We are reminded of how He promises to be with us forever. That is, we see and hear and sing and pray the gospel. And then we bow our heads and worship. Church, I pray that this week that your praying here would not be the only time you do so, but rather it would be the start of a habit that you carry with you all week. That as you are reminded of what God has done for you, that you would stop in that moment and bow your head and worship. This is what Christians are. We're worshipers of the one true God. Amen? And He has done so much for us. Now, in closing, is there a, a lesson, a, a takeaway from these three seemingly disconnected scenes? I mean, they're grouped together because they all relate to the travel back to Israel. But is there, is there a uniting principle, a takeaway, if you will? I think so. In the first scene, we saw God's power as the reluctant Moses actually obeys and heads for Egypt. And we saw God's providence as he declares that he's scooping up the people of God and calling them his son. Now that's something only God can do. Only God has that kind of power. In the second scene, admittedly rather bizarre, we saw God demonstrating that he would tolerate Moses' questions even Moses' objections, but not his sustained disobedience. That is, God's power and his sovereignty demand that his people obey. God has no one to trifle with. And then in the final scene, the third one, we saw the power of God in the signs performed and in the words declared. So what connects all these scenes? Well, they all have to do with deliverance. So I think we could say the road to deliverance is paved by the sovereignty of God. That is, in each one of these scenes, we see something of God's ability and His right and His authority and His power to do what He's going to do. And how does God use His sovereignty for the people of God? Well, he uses it to deliver us. Christian, you have been put on the road to deliverance by the power of God. 
in the sovereignty of God, you're here today being reminded of who he is and what he's done for you. And each step of this journey, from here to glory, you'll be walking on the road that God has already paved for you. No one can knock God off course. Let's pray. Father, we praise you today that in your good, sweet, kind mercy, you have given us these great and precious promises. We thank you that the road to deliverance is paved by you. As we now get to enjoy baptism, get to see a picture of the new covenant sign and hear of how you're saving yet another person, Katie. God, pray that this would be motivating and encouraging to all. In Jesus' name, amen. Wonderful sermon, wonderful message for us. Uh, God is the only one who saves, amen? So not traditions or family heritage, uh, not baptism. Baptism doesn't save us. Only God saves. And if we know God, then we want to proclaim him. We want to love him. We want to follow him and and obey him. And as Pastor Chuck uh, described during the sermon, baptism is, is just a way to publicly proclaim that we are identifying with Christ, that we are on his side, that we are going to obey him and follow him uh, for the rest of our lives. And we have one who has come to uh, follow in obedience this morning, and that's Katie Vasudev. So Katie, come on in. Let's welcome her as she comes in to give her testimony. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Katie. I've been attending Churnshaw Mill for the past year and a half now. Today, I would like to be baptized and share, my, and share this testimony in hopes that someone may come to know God's grace and his sacrifice on the cross. I grew up attending church. My family is Christian, and they raised me in the ways of the Lord. I always knew that I needed God, and I ultimately wanted to follow Christ. I remember when I was around 12, when I really understood that if I died right then, I would not go to heaven. I wanted to give my life to Christ, but I wasn't ready to surrender all I had to God and to call upon his name. At that point, I felt a lot of resistance in my heart. I began really questioning faith and whether this was what I really wanted. It wasn't until I was in eighth grade and I went to a Christian summer camp that things changed. The message that was preached there really resonated with me. The emphasis of the sermon was that God will never leave us or forsake us. He's a good father who will walk alongside us in all our trials. Even in the darkest times in our life, God is faithful to his people. His power is made perfect in our weakness. I knew that was what I needed. I knew, how, I knew that he was a good God, but myself to be a sinner needing grace. This was when God saved me. I proclaimed Christ as my Lord and Savior. Since then, God has grown my faith a lot. However, the most spiritually challenging time in my life has been more recently. When I became a student at ASU, I got plugged into Christian Challenge and started coming to Church on Mill. I felt like I was really thriving. I was diving more into the word. And then starting this last semester, I really began to struggle. I fell into some sins and lies from the enemy. I felt alone. I felt like I needed to keep my sins in the dark and avoid talking to anybody about it, even God. Through this time, the Holy Spirit continually reminded me that 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I knew that I needed to believe and practice that verse. God has blessed me so much with community to help me step out of sin walk in surrender, and to remember God's grace. I'm so incredibly grateful for members of Church on Mill and Christian Challenge that have helped me through a lot of my struggles. God has taught me so much about the importance of community and what true repentance looks like. So now I proclaim publicly in this baptism that Jesus is Lord and that he has saved me. Thank you.
Katie, because of your confession of faith in Jesus, we baptize you, our sister in Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we, we rejoice in what you have done. We rejoice in salvation. We thank you for what you've done in Katie's life. We thank you for the family that she grew up in that was faithful to you in sharing the scripture. We thank you for a community here uh, with Christian Challenge and, and this church that has uh, encouraged her and helped her to grow. Uh, God, we thank you most of all for your word and for your, your son who has died and who has given new life to us. Uh, we thank you for Katie, and we just pray that we would be a church family that would love her well and continue to help her to grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Katie is um, being recommended to you to become officially part of the church. And in addition to her, we have a couple of other people to let you know about. Here, they'll be up here on the screen. Uh, Bria, who I think I saw. Yes, there she is. This is Bria. And then uh, two more, Kevin and Margie. They've got a scary name, but they're not scary. <laughs> All right, this is Kevin and Margie. Uh, they were in the first gathering today. So these four are part of a, a larger crew that believe the Lord has brought him here and they're excited to become part of us. So on Sunday night, next Sunday night, we'll welcome them officially into the church. Between now and then, I encourage you to stop and get to know them a bit. Ask them about how the Lord saved them. Would you stand? And our benediction for today comes from Ephesians 2, and it's along the theme of what we've been exploring today. It says this, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles were in the flesh, were called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh of the hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.